going to go ahead and read all three passages in our Gospel Harmony here this morning. There's just a few verses in each one. Chapter 20, and we'll start there in verse 41. Luke chapter 20, verses 41 through 44. Then he said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore David calls him Lord. And how is he his son? Turn over to Matthew. Or let's go to Mark first. Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, read verses 35 through 37. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. Turn to Matthew, chapter 22, verses 41 through 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, The wisdom of Your Son is unparalleled. As we read in the pages of Holy Scripture, this dialogue that He is having, I pray that we are appropriately humbled. And as the Pharisees and religious leaders were silenced before Jesus, I pray there would be a certain amount of an awed silence in us as well. There is a tremendous mystery revealed to us in Your Son. And I pray that You would help us to better understand that mystery here today. Thankful that this is something that we know that human minds have not made up, but instead is the very act of Your sovereign will and prerogative. Help us to know Jesus rightly and to know Him as fully as we can. We pray this in His name. Amen. You can be seated. Quintessential, an adjective, meaning the pure and essential essence of something, the most perfect embodiment of something. Now that's a word that perhaps you've used in conversation before. Quintessential. 
and yet you might not know its origin. The word in its noun form is quintessence. Quintessence. And if we break that word apart, we notice the prefix quint means five, and the root word essence means the basic nature or quality that makes something up or makes something what it is. Put together, this word means a fifth essence. The fifth essence. Now, tracing back to the days before the advent of Christ, there had been a long-standing philosophical discussion regarding what is the most basic stuff that makes up the universe. The discussion happened all over the known world. And many cultures came to a conclusion that everything is made up of a few elements. Now, by elements, they meant something different than what we mean by the word element today. And while there are some cultures that added a few more or took away a couple, it was generally concluded that there are at least four elements that made up everything. Earth, air, water, and fire. Earth, air, water, and fire. Yet, even after having identified these four elements as making up everything, there was a further philosophical discussion that probed into what is the more fundamental thing that makes up even those four elements. What is this fifth element, this fifth essence, this quint essence that makes up everything else? What is the most fundamental building block of everything? Now, much time was spent considering what that quintessence might be, the most basic thing that makes all things, all other things up. What's really fascinating is that when this whole discussion was going on, around 400 B.C., there's a Greek philosopher named Democritus who actually put forward the idea that everything was made up of atoms. His idea came from the Greek root ah, meaning not, and tamas, meaning cuttable, uncuttable. He said that everything was made up of uncuttable particles. But his ideas were rejected. And for nearly 2,000 years, the world continued in their search for the quint essence, the fifth essence that summed up the other four. It wouldn't be until the 1600s that Robert Boyle would refute the traditional idea of elements being air, earth, fire, and water, that the search for quint essence would begin to be seen as a futile quest. Antoine Lavoisier in the late 1700s and John Dalton in the early 1800s would make use of experimental chemistry to unlock further mysteries revolving around what makes up matter and would be what we call the originators of modern atomic theory. Traveling back to Democritus' original idea way back in 400 B.C., which he arrived at just through philosophical considerations, not experimental ones. Yet, the word quintessential still is with us today. I guess a 2,000-year futile quest doesn't die easily. We still use the term to describe that which best typifies something or gets to the very heart or soul of a matter. Now, we've just heard four questions that were put to Jesus. The Jewish Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and Herodians, the Sadducees, and the scribes each took their turn up to bat. All were botched attempts at discrediting Jesus in an around-the-bush sort of fashion. Whether these were through challenges against the unique authority that Jesus exercised, or attempts to embroil Jesus in a political struggle, or an effort to show his theology absurd, or an endeavor to stigmatize Jesus through what they believed were no-win questions. 
But each and every question, Jesus has a perfect answer for. And the answers were not long-winded. They were simple and elegant and beautiful. They were straightforward answers that left his adversaries scratching their heads dumbfounded. We're even told speechless. There's Jesus in the midst of the temple, exactly where the Jewish leadership has longed to have him. Right there, home field advantage, so they thought. (laughs) Right there in the temple, right? Ready to pounce upon Jesus. Ready to humiliate him. And in reality, they find themselves humiliated. They can't ensnare Jesus. They can't turn everyone against him through some error of his theology or his um, answers to their questions. So at this point, they're ready to just ditch all these futile efforts to show Jesus somehow inadequate through questions, because all the questions did is show themselves to be inadequate. And they didn't like how that was going. But none of their questions really got at the heart of the situation. But before they're allowed to retreat back to their dark corner, their dark rooms, to plot further how they might bring about Jesus' demise, Jesus has a question for them. The questioned becomes the questioner. And now Jesus puts forward his own question. Ralph Martin quits. After a day of questions comes the question of the day. After a day of questions comes the question of the day. This question is the question to end all questions because it really does deal with the quintessential matter standing between these religious leaders and Jesus. Their rebellion and their murderous intents all arise because they deny the nature of who the Christ is. They deny who Jesus is. Had they believed Jesus to be who He said He was, who He showed Himself to be, who John the Baptist announced Him to be, who God the Father declared Him to be, and whom the Scriptures from long ago had foretold He would be, this would be a completely different scene unfolding before us. In a sermon entitled, The Quintessential Question, we're going to break this indispensable question into its constituent parts. In any problem-solving exercise, it's often that you'll find yourself engaging in a pattern of problem-solving, something like this, where you first identify what is given. You note your starting truth that you're working with. Then you consider, what am I being asked for? What is the thing I'm trying to solve for? What's the problem I'm engaged in? And then thirdly, you're going to work the solution. So we're going to proceed in that fashion through this message this morning. We're going to look at the given. We're then going to consider the riddle, and then we'll look at the solution. The given, the riddle, the solution. Let's first of all look at the given. So Jesus asks this question. It's simple. It's straightforward. It's though directed at the heart of the Pharisees' problem, their understanding of who the Christ is. He asks this direct question aimed at the very core of their rebellion. And Mark and Luke summarize while Matthew gives us an account that's kind of more play-by-play. And so we're going to follow his reading here. Jesus asks, what do you think about the Christ? Now remember, the word Christ, Christos, is is um, akin to the word Messiah, right? So, the Old Testament understanding of the Messiah, the word Christ in the New Testament, the Greek word Christos, is the word describing the Messiah. So, Jesus here asks them, what do you think about the Messiah? 
What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, the Pharisees feel completely and utterly prepared for a question like that. I mean, it's like one of those questions that you're asked, and you're like, man, easy peasy, there it is, I'll just answer it right away. And so they blurt out very quickly what the answer is. The Messiah is David's son. Whose son is the Messiah? The son of David. Literally, they just say, of David. He's David's, that's what they say. Now, we might mention that this seems a little strange to us today. If I was to ask David here, who is your father? He wouldn't probably trace back 18 generations to uh, his great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. He would just tell me who his immediate father is, right? So this might strike us a little odd that, you know, the answer is David, when, I mean, David is so far removed from the equation. But it's not odd at all given their context. The question is assumed to be in reference to the bigger picture. The question is assumed to be in reference to the bigger picture. From whose lineage would the Messiah come? Which notable, big, huge figure in the Old Testament is the Messiah to come from? Who is the man whom God made a covenant with that he would then be, a descendant from him would be this eternal king, this Messiah? In Mark's account, Jesus indicates that the scribes were of consensus on the matter. They said that Christ is the son of David. That's, of course, the correct answer. The Messiah, the Christ, was indeed a descendant of David. What proof do we have of that? Well, this is essential to the identity of the Messiah. He's a descendant of David. It's like the requirement that our president be a U.S.-born citizen, right? A requirement to the office. This is, there's ample Old Testament declaration to this. Second Samuel 7 is the most notable passage, and we see this being outlined. I want to read just a couple of verses. Second Samuel 7, verses 12, 13, and then 16. When your days are complete, and you lie down with your fathers, this is the Lord speaking to David, I will rise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, maybe at first glance you're thinking, oh, it's talking about Solomon here. Solomon is David's son. But then when we start seeing the words like forever, 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 we know real quickly that Solomon did not reign forever. This is a reference to a coming king who would have an eternal reign. This one would come from the line of David. Isaiah 11 picks up on this as well. There's many, many passages. I'm just going to read a couple. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Remember, Jesse is who? David's dad. Yes, very good. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what I see, nor make a decision by what ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor. And decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins. And faithfulness the belt about his waist. Amos 9.11 In that day I will rise up the fallen booth of David 
and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Psalm 89, verse 3, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. The picture here given to us by the prophets and by the writings is that there would be a seed of David who would be risen up and restore the broken places, who would reign forever. Now, that title, Son of David, we see notably being made reference to Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus did not object to being called the Son of David. Blind beggars called out to Jesus. Jesus, Son of David, mercy us. A Canaanite woman did the same. Referred to him as Son of David. The crowd shouting to him, not that many days before this event, right? We're in the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. Just days before this, Jesus is coming in, the triumphal entry. And what is everybody shouting? Hosanna to the Son of David. Not only were the crowds shouting Son of David to Jesus, but then the children in the temple are singing songs about this same truth. And the religious leaders don't like it one bit. Remember? They're infuriated that this title is being used in reference to Jesus. But the Jewish leadership knew that the Messiah would indeed come from David's line. And they were absolutely right about that. But they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, regardless of what his lineage might be. Brings us to point number two. The riddle. The riddle. Now we have to consider the conundrum that is presented to us in Psalm 110. Psalm 110 presents us with a conundrum. We are going to read it in its entirety in just a few moments. If you want to turn over there, you can and be ready. But we see a conundrum here in Psalm 110. Now, Jesus, after they say he's David's son, he issues now a follow-up question. And it's this follow-up question that leaves his opponents speechless. He asks, Okay, he's David's son. Explain this to me. How then can David himself, while under the influence of the Holy Spirit, call him, speaking about the Messiah, call the Messiah Lord? If the Messiah is David's son, how is it that David calls him Lord, saying, quote, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I might place your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Luke tells us that this quotation happens from the book of Psalms. Psalm 110 is the most frequently quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. It's either quoted or alluded to some at least 33 times in the New Testament. Matter of fact, when I originally was working this out, I had listed all of those references and decided for the efforts of time I removed them all. But there is a whole lot of references to this text in the New Testament. So it's a greatly familiar text. This is just like what Jesus did before. Remember when he goes about um, defending the reality of the resurrection? He takes them to a passage in the Old Testament that they would have been super familiar with. He says, you remember that passage about Moses and the bush? 
<laughs> you remember that part? He takes them to a passage which all of them would have been familiar with. Even Sadducees would have had no problem with that text. Here again, Jesus points out to them a psalm that they were greatly familiar with. Psalm 110. It's one of the reasons why this psalm continues to pop up in the New Testament as well. It was something that the Jewish people were very, very familiar with. It's interesting that Jesus selects these high-profile texts to make his point. And what he ends up doing implicitly is he shows these individuals who are so meticulous about the Scriptures that they've missed the big point. Right? They've been so scrupulous about their legalism, but they've missed the big point. They've missed the forest for the trees. It's akin to what Jesus said in John 5 when he says, You don't have his word abiding in you, for you don't believe him who he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it's these that testify about me. And you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. His point is, all this was pointing to me. I mean, while you reject me, so you don't have life. You see, the Old Testament was intended to set the stage for Christ's coming. In reading and studying and meditating upon God's Word, God's people were meant to be placed in a position of expectant waiting for the Messiah's arrival and then to be able to identify Him when He came. So Jesus asks the leaders to reconcile the idea that the Messiah is David's son and yet David refers to Him as my Lord in Psalm 110. This argument rests on three premises. Number one, the Psalms are Scripture. You can see him making this statement. David said, in the Spirit. Right? We see here another point in which Jesus upholds the authority of the Old Testament. As he did throughout all of his ministry in life. Here's an example of one in the Psalms. He's saying David, while singing or writing this psalm, is doing so in the Holy Spirit. So, the first premise here is that this, which he's quoting, is Scripture. It comes with God's authority. That's the first premise. The second one is that this psalm is Davidic. That David wrote this psalm. Now we see that there's a little title. And you'll see titles in front of a lot of the psalms. And here's one of those cases where it says, A Psalm of David. And there's been all kinds of debates and discussions about the authority of the psalm titles and questions back and forth and around again. But here's one case in which we have no doubts whatsoever. (laughs) This psalm is written by David. Jesus himself claimed it. And obviously, his audience believed it as well. There was widespread acceptance that this was David's psalm. Otherwise, his argument doesn't work. If David doesn't write it, then the one who's saying, my Lord, it no longer fits, right? The whole argument rests on these ideas that this is Scripture, that this is written by David. And the third premise is that the psalm was messianic. That the Lord that David's referring to is the Messiah to come. Or at least the second Lord that he refers to is the Messiah to come. This psalm indicates that David recognizes two as Lord. Literally, the wording in the Hebrew goes like this. He says, the Lord, and the word there is Yahweh in Hebrew, said to my Lord, the word there is Adonai. So, Yahweh says to my Adonai, and then he goes on and continues. So, the, the idea here is this. That Yahweh God is telling Adonai, the Messiah, to sit at his right hand. That's the argument. And what Jesus is asking is, how is it possible that if the Messiah is David's son, that David refers to his son 
as my Adonai, my Lord. How is, if this is the Messiah, why does David, who is the Messiah's father, calling him Lord? Why does a father, when does a father ever call his son Lord? This breaks with all custom. I mean, it might make sense to hear a son call his father Lord in some form or fashion, but not a father call his son Lord, especially given that societal situation. In the family, the father was the great person. It was an established truth that his sons were less significant than he was. In a society that held views like this, and combined with the fact that we're talking about the great King David, who everyone looked back to and held in such high esteem, hardly anyone held in higher esteem than King David by the Israelites, then who is David speaking about? Because here David calls a future son of his Adonai. calls him Lord. And since he calls him Lord, he must be saying that the one to come is greater than he. But who's greater than the great King David? That's the question. You see, this son was recognized by David as greater than himself. Let's quickly refresh our memories on Psalm 110. If you're there, let's read along with me. Here we see Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Adonai, to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the days of His wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, He will lift up His head. Now, for any king of Israel to be described as sitting at God's right hand is already a unique thing. This is an unparalleled sort of intimacy and an unparalleled sort of authority that's being described here between this king, this Adonai, and Yahweh God. But even if that was just considered, well, that's just kind of highfalutin language. You know, it's just figurative language. Even if that was the case, the text goes on to describe this individual as a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, what's interesting about Melchizedek Well, he was a king-priest. What's so interesting about this individual being a king and a priest? Well, if we know from the way in which God set up the kings and the priests, they came from different lineages, right? The kings came from the line of David, the, the tribe of Judah, where it was from the tribe of Levi that the priests descended. But here we have a descendant of David, who's considered not only an eternal king, but an eternal priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, we could say a lot more about Melchizedek, but we'll save that for another day. Or we'll just let you listen to wonderful Pastor Bryn's sermon on the subject at an earlier time. But here we have this individual, this Messiah, being referred to as sitting at God's right hand, and not only being a king, but being a priest. 
And not only is this then priest king sitting at God's right hand, but he's judging the nations. He's shattering kings in the days of his wrath, which alone is something that's like God's prerogative. God's the one that brings ultimate and final judgment upon his enemies. So this Messiah defeats our greatest enemies, reigns over an area extending far beyond Israel, over the nations, right? Not just the nation of Israel, but over the nations. He serves as a priest forever, and he judges all of the nations. Who is this Messiah? That's what this question is getting at. Jesus asked the question, who is the Christ? And their quick answer is, son of David. J.C. Ryle says this. Let us beware of undervaluing or despising the Old Testament. There are deep things about Jesus in it, which many walk over like hidden gold mines and know not the treasures beneath their feet. The Old Testament was intended to teach men about Christ by types and figures and prophecy till He Himself should appear on earth. Jesus is looking to Psalm 110. And we'll see many, many other New Testament writers pull upon Psalm 110 as well, following Jesus' example to see just how much richness is described to us about the Messiah there. Well, there's the riddle. How is it possible that this one called David's son, David then refers to as his Lord? Well, for that we go finally, uh, point three, to the solution. The solution. First, I want to note what the answer of Jesus' audience was. Luke tells us nothing of the response of those who heard Jesus' words. And I want to return to that idea in just a few minutes, but Luke has, there's no response from anybody. Jesus makes a statement, and then on goes the narrative. And we'll see that Luke doesn't have to finish his story there because he's got a second volume where he can pick up the story, and we're going to see that in a minute. But he has no immediate answer there in that context. We don't see how anyone responded to that. Matthew is the one who focuses upon the Pharisees' response. Mark is the one who focuses on the response of the general public. The general public, we're told, the great crowd heard him gladly. They were listening gladly to what Jesus is saying here. They're all smiles. And I'm sure that their smiles and their gladness was nothing but salt in the wounds of the Pharisees. You know, if anything, the Pharisees were considered the religious group of the people. You know, the Sadducees had all the authority and power. You know, they had Roman connections and all the rest. They had like a political power. The Pharisees just had power of the populace. But they're seeing that popular vote decreasing and people enjoying Jesus. And they're getting more and more conflicted and more and more angry and more and more venomous towards Jesus. But they can't do anything about it. Everything they try backfires on them. They would love nothing more than to be able to provide an answer on this occasion and show Jesus they know how to answer, but they're left with nothing. I can imagine the stunned silence and the frustration inside. Only we had something to say. You see, the only way to answer the question was to concede the greatness of David's coming son. Perhaps the prominence, the pre-existence, the preeminence of the Messiah. But no one wanted to explore this irrefutable conclusion any further. So they don't ask any further questions and they quietly retreat away. We're told no one dared ask Him any more questions from this day onward. D.A. Carson notes, 
The teacher who never attended the right schools confounds the greatest theologians in the land. The teacher who never attended one of their rabbinical schools confounds the greatest theologians in the land. You know, these schooled, trained religious leaders thought they held all of the advantages in the debate. They thought they had home field advantage. They didn't. It was Jesus' father's house, right? And Jesus, there is the Word of God incarnate, had no trouble answering their questions and could pose one simple question and reduce them to silence. Have you ever witnessed a debate in which one party is left in utter silence? Have you ever seen that? Have you ever been involved in a debate before where all of a sudden, just the strength of argument, you literally can't say anything else? Sadly, the quietness in these men is not because of some humility and some brokenness. It's a vengeful, hateful silence. They're stewing on their silence. And they're plotting and scheming and wishing Jesus' destruction all the more. But having said that, I just want to comment quickly that there is a silence that is befitting us. There is a silence that doesn't come from vengeful hate. There's a silence that is fitting the one who's been humbled and broken before the Lord. When a man becomes a Christian, there's a sense in which he's left speechless. When you come to grips with the majesty and greatness and goodness of Jesus Christ, how can you say anything? It's like Job, you know, after seeing God in the whirlwind, he covers his mouth and he says, I've spoken, but I will speak no more. You know, at that point, all of the excuses stop. The self-justifications cease. The accusations vanish. I so hope and long that everyone in this room comes to at least some point in this life where they recognize that. Because regardless of whether or not you do in this life, one day every mouth will be stopped before God. Romans 3.19 declares it. For some, it won't be until the day of judgment. And on that great day, the silence of every unbeliever and skeptic will give glory to God. Because He's arrayed in His majesty. And every mouth is stopped. I pray that by God's grace, He would stop our mouths so we would listen and humbly receive these words from Jesus. Their answer is insufficient. What's the aim of Jesus' inquiry? The aim of Jesus' inquiry? He's certainly not doubting the authenticity of these words as given by the Holy Spirit. He believes that they were given by the Holy Spirit. He's also not doubting that they were written by David. He agrees that David wrote them. Nor that is he doubting that the Messiah would come from David's line. His reason for asking the question is not to make them go, oh, oh, we were wrong about the fact that he was born through David. No, that's true. It's all right. The problem with their initial answer is not that the answer itself was wrong. The problem is that the answer was incomplete. It's not that the answer was wrong. It's the answer was incomplete. He's taking exception to a merely human descent for the Christ. In other words, the religious leaders are correct that the Messiah would come from the line of David, that he would indeed be David's son. But their silence was due to failure to think about the Messiah as not only the son of David, but also as the son of God. Hendrickson says, God is speaking to the mediator. 
He's promising the mediator such preeminence, power, authority, and majesty as to be proper only for one who, as to his person from all eternity, was, is, now, and forever will be God. The only way to really rectify the question in Psalm 110 is to recognize the greatness of this Messiah. They transcend a merely human explanation. Note that Simon Peter, when he's asked the question by Jesus, he asks, first of all, who do people say that I am? And they say there's several different options. And then Jesus turns and says, but who do you say that I am? And note what Peter says. You are the Christ, the son of David. No, no, no. What does he say? The son of the living God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus tells Peter when he makes that confession that he is blessed. And how is it that Peter's blessed? Because flesh and blood didn't reveal that to Peter. But God the Father revealed that to Peter. And then Jesus goes on to say, Upon this rock, this confession, I will build my church. And even the gates of Hades, not even death itself, will stop my church. What's crucial to this definition? The Christ, yes, absolutely son of David. But what's crucial to this statement from Peter? That he declares Jesus as the son of the living God. You see, we should be placed in awe of Jesus' paternity, his sonship. The reality, the Messiah is David's son, testifies to his true humanity. It is true and right to say that he's the son of David. He is. And therefore, he is fully man. But the fact that David refers to him as Lord points to the fact that he's more than just a man. He is truly a man. But he's both David's son and he's David's Lord. How is this possible? We had to read Revelation 22.16. This is just such a simple little, little verse. But listen how elegant this is. I, Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. Listen, I am the root and the descendant of David. Don't miss that. I'm the root and the descendant of David. Note, what's being claimed there is, I'm the descendant of David. Yes, but I'm the root of David. I'm the originator of David. I'm the bright and morning star. And while he's David's offspring, he's also David's Lord. It's certainly true that the Messiah was the son of David, but that title falls short of capturing the Messiah's identity in essential ways. The Messiah is not only David's son, but he's God's son. What D.A. Carson called a dual paternity. He has two fathers in this sense. He is the son of David, but he's the son of God eternally. Jesus is both David's creator and his human son. Jesus was David's greater son. Interestingly enough, Psalm 1-2 is so densely packed with rich theology here. We have a discussion of the Trinity, a Trinitarian kind of relationship being discussed here. We have Father and Son being referred to, and if this is being written by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's present in the inspiration of the text. So the Holy Spirit present, and then the Father and Son's relationship being spoken to here. So you have a Trinitarian thing going on in this text. And you also have the two natures of Christ being described here in this text in Psalm 110. 
crucial, fundamental beliefs of Christianity, right? The Trinity and the two persons, or the two natures of Christ. Sorry, not two persons, two natures of Christ. Strike that from the record. Two natures of Christ. Fully man and fully God. Three persons in the Godhead, two natures. Jesus. I said to you earlier that Luke doesn't provide us an answer, but it's interesting. In a roundabout fashion, he does. You just have to wait for it. One of those moments, you know, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. Here it is. Acts chapter 2. We had this read this morning as well. Verse 29. And note that the reference is clearly to Psalm 110. Listen to what is said here. This is, this is kind of Luke's way of answering Jesus' question. It gets answered through the Apostle Peter later on. This is what he says. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he neither was abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we're all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth that which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but He Himself says, Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. There it is. How is it possible that David call his future son his Lord? Because he is. David died into the ground. Jesus died, rose again, ascended to the heavens. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him the Messiah, Jesus Christ, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. You see, Bloomberg says, the Messiah is no mortal, not even the most exalted of human kings. He is divine. How is it that David can call his coming son my Lord? Because he is David's Lord. Who is Jesus? Many people declare Jesus was a good man. To many, even the best man who ever lived. There's even non-Christians that you can find quotes saying things like the most influential person who ever lived on earth, Jesus. Even those who don't believe in him, don't trust in him, don't love him. Yet their denial of Jesus' deity means that they don't know Jesus at all. MacArthur says, The battle lines of biblical Christianity are inevitably drawn at the issue of Jesus' divinity. That is the one doctrine apart from which all others are meaningless. Because if he were not divine, he could not be the savior of the world. And men would have no way of becoming reconciled to God. You see, whatever is concluded about Jesus, you cannot refer to him merely as a man. The answer that Jesus is the son of David is true, but it's not sufficient. It's not enough. This is akin to the point that 
C.S. Lewis famously makes in his Lord Liar Lunatic argument, Lewis rightly argued that since Jesus taught that he himself was God, you only had three options when it comes to discussing Jesus. He could be called a liar or a lunatic, as many who have come and gone who have made similar claims that Jesus has, might have made. A crazy man might make a statement like that, or a complete liar might make a statement like that. But in either of those cases, you certainly wouldn't call the individual, in your memories or otherwise, a good teacher. Right? You wouldn't call the lunatic a good teacher, and you wouldn't call a liar a good teacher. So if you refer to Jesus as a good teacher, you can't call him. You either could be, a, you know, you can't be a good teacher and meanwhile be a liar or a lunatic. So Lewis then was expressing the illogical nature of referring to a man whose words you completely disbelieve as being a good teacher. If you indeed believe that Jesus was a good teacher, then you must conclude that what he taught about himself was true. And what did he teach about himself? That he was God and therefore Lord. See, what Jesus is doing in this text is correcting a moment of tremendous understatement. What was said was as, was as true as it was stated, but it didn't go far enough. There was something quintessential to their understanding of the Messiah that was lacking. I'm sure we've all encountered moments like this, even with common everyday things. You know, like someone calling the TGI Friday's brownie obsession, or the BJ's Kazuki merely desserts, or chess merely a board game, or Michael Jordan, a basketball player, or Abraham Lincoln, a U.S. president, or Oakridge Christian Academy, an academically strong private school. <laughs> all those statements are true. They're all true. But they don't go far enough. The problem is seen in their failure of, the, of each of those descriptions to communicate the full measure of greatness associated with each one. The brownie obsession and Pazuki are not merely desserts. They're what all desserts hope to grow up to be one day. Chess is not merely a game. Jordan was arguably the best basketball player ever. Lincoln's presidency was unparalleled. And Orca exists to bring glory to God. And to leave that out is to leave out the essential reason for its existence. It's absolutely true that the Messiah is the son of David. However, he's much more than that. He's the son of God. David's son is David's Lord. Jesus was truly man, but he was also truly God. Who but God can forgive sins? Who but God can create bread and fish? Who but God can speak to the wind and waves and they obey Him? You see, Jesus' title as Son of David and Messiah were subject to much misunderstanding. Instead of an immediate triumphal reign, Jesus would triumph, but He would do so through rejection, through false conviction, through humiliating ex- execution. Only then followed by resurrection and ascension. You see, Jesus would go to His royal throne, but not without the cross. He would receive the crown of glory, but not apart from the crown of thorns. That's why it's so important that you understand who we're talking about when we talk about the Christ. Paul rightly describes Jesus in Romans 1, 3, and 4 as born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Yes, according to the flesh, son of David, declared son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here's the truly amazing part. Jesus, who was the son of David and the son of God, has made a way by which we can be called sons of God. Jesus said in Luke 12 or 20, verses 35 to 36, not too many verses before this, 
that those who attain to the resurrection of the dead cannot even die anymore and are sons of God. Galatians 3.26 explains that through faith in Christ Jesus, we are made sons of God. Here the Son of David and Son of God has worked in such a way that we can be called sons of God. If you repent and call out to Jesus, you'll find God the Son ready and willing to save and excited to grant you eternal life. But should you reject the Son, you will not see life, but the wrath of God will remain on you. So perhaps it's appropriate that I end with asking the question that Jesus asked. What do you think of the Christ? This is the quintessential question, for it deals with the quintessential nature of Jesus. Your answer to that question carries eternal ramifications. If you believe that Jesus is the God-man, and call out to Him as the mediator between you and God, repenting of your sin and trusting in His righteousness, then David's Son is not only His Lord, but He's your Lord too. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Your marvelous Word. We are so challenged by it. We're edified by it. We're encouraged by it. We're rebuked by it. We're corrected by it. We're trained by it. Lord, help us to think of You rightly and to think of Your Son rightly. It is very possible for us to make true statements about things of theology and meanwhile those statements not be full or sufficient. I pray, Lord, that You would grow us in the knowledge of Your Word for the purpose of us being rightly related to You. We thank You for the work of Your Son, Jesus, who is both David's Son and Yours. And as the God-man could lay down His life as a ransom for many. Pray that we would always be grateful for His work. Always give You praise. We pray for any in here who don't know Him as Lord and Savior that You would grant them repentance and faith this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.